two wicked stepsisters, magic that wears off at midnight, and a pair of glass slippers. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Of course it's Cinderella, but this one is special. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, the Mets premiere of Massenet's Cendrillon. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Straight out of the storybook, Laurent Pelly's production of Cendrillon is everything you want for Massenet's lush and romantic opera. I'm Stuart Holt, and today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we are thrilled to have Desiree Mays, resident speaker for the Santa Fe Opera, to guide us through the history of the Cinderella fairy tale and the operas the story has inspired. I hope you all had the good fortune to be read fairy tales when you were small. Do those warm memories bring back happy feelings of childhood, of being read fairy tales by parents somewhere warm and cozy, in bed before sleep, perhaps? Looking back, did those special times influence your thinking, your moral values and your manners as you grow up? Did you relish the scary bits, sure in the knowledge that all would come out well in the end? Did myth take over from fairy tales as you moved from childhood into adolescence? What is the difference between fairy tale and myth anyway? One could answer on the simplest level that fairy tales typically have happy endings, where myths generally do not. Fairy tales and myths are, of course, a major source of inspiration for opera. On the fairy tale end, you have Hansel and Gretel, Rusalka, Cinderella, Um, And then, on the other hand, Greek tragedies and epics such as Wagner presents us with. The great scholar, writer, and teacher Joseph Campbell pointed out that stories with mass appeal are as popular today as they ever were. Stories such as Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and the Star Wars epics are just a few present-day versions of the great myths. The hero or heroine's quest for knowledge, love, redemption maybe seeking the grail, certainly seeking truth, whatever it is that lies at the end of the journey. You know, there really are only a few great stories. The rest ripple forth from them. And it all begins with fairy tales, which one hopes continue to be told in these days of computers, busy parents with no storytelling nannies in sight. Make no mistake, part of growing up is about storytelling stories that transition a child out of childhood, awakening them to new possibilities and experiences, opening up the world of myth in the framework of the all-too-real, often scary world in which they find themselves. It's interesting that today Cinderella operas are easily dismissed as simply children's tales. But in our time of very harsh realism, perhaps these tales are the very antidote we need, a form of escapism set to glorious music, allowing one to return to the fray of everyday life, refreshed and energized. No one, I promise you, will leave Cinderella without a feeling of hope and optimism, having been bathed in the music of Massenet for a couple of hours. You should simply think of it as therapy. So first of all, let's ask, why are stories so important to us as human beings? Joseph Campbell pointed out, fairy tales are told for entertainment. Most fairy tales have a happy ending, but while en route to that happy ending, mythological motifs occur. For example, the motif of uh, a being in trouble, then hearing a voice or discovering someone who comes to your aid. A fairy tale is a child's myth. As one grows older, there is a need for sturdier myths. It is said that the old stories no longer sustain us in rapidly changing times, and the new story of our time 
is maybe not yet clear. Campbell argues that yes, the story is changing, but the inner life of men and women is exactly the same as it's always been since primitive times. The myth of the human quest, the stages of realization, and the transition from childhood to maturity, that story is unchanged, though the details can change. The dress, the social manners, the context, and the values evolve in keeping with the times. In essence, the stories, no matter how you tell them, are fundamentally the same. Bill Moyers, who produced the TV series of conversations with Joseph Campbell, told of a memory he had of his dear friend right here in New York. He told of a memory he had of Campbell right here in New York. He recalled, coming up from the subway in Times Square, he, Moyers, smiled, remembering the image that had once occurred to Campbell at that very spot in Times Square. Campbell had said, the latest incarnation of Oedipus, the continued romance of Beauty and the Beast, stands this afternoon on the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, waiting for the traffic light to change. So the stories are still with us no matter where or when we put them down. The events are timeless. It's just the surroundings that change. You know that there are about 700 versions of the Cinderella story. Cinderella, I think, does ultimately fulfill our hopes and dreams after negotiating the negative experiences that most children experience. Problems such as sibling rivalry, the perceived cruelty of brothers and sisters, of their being preferred over. I bet some of you have had this experience. So there's a jealousy or a, or a rivalry with siblings, especially older siblings who might give you a hard time. Most children struggle with such issues, and the ugly stepsisters and the cruel stepmother in the story put faces on that situation. If a child can identify with Cinderella's plight and keep it in control, he or she may not feel so alone. It can be comforting for the child. This is part of the comfort that we get from these tales. Cinderella's place among the ashes may be connected to the perceived change in the beloved mother's attitude to the child. To a very small child, the mother is someone who loves unconditionally and who actively encourages the child to be the center of the universe. Then, to the child's dismay, the mother seems to change. She becomes a demanding figure who sets down rules and regulations as the process of socialization begins. The child begins to feel mistreated, unloved, and guilty. As she becomes more demanding, the loving mother may be replaced in the child's eyes by the cruel stepmother, someone who is demanding, who forbids all the things the child could formerly do without being criticized, an ogre who insists the child be clean, tidy, and well-mannered. Bruno Bettelheim reported that fairy, child's, fairy tales help these children with troubling issues such as this on a deeply subconscious level. When a story corresponds to how a child is feeling, that story can become emotionally true for the child. In regard to Cinderella, Bettelheim said that at this stage, the beloved mother and the cruel stepmother may be one and the same person, one being transformed into the other in the shift that occurs when it's time to learn sociable behavior. The child feels as if she has been relegated to the ashes, made to sit in the cinders, even as her siblings appear to be experiencing no such disgrace. So the earliest version of the Cinderella tale came from Egypt and was recorded by Strabo, a Greek historian who lived at the time of Christ. Strabo told of a young Egyptian woman, Rhodophus, who, while bathing one day, was startled when an eagle swooped down and seized one of her sandals in his beak. The eagle flew to Memphis, Egypt, <laughs> where he dropped the sandal in the lap of the pharaoh, who was fascinated by its size and shape. The pharaoh sent messages out to find the owner. They found Rodophus, brought it to the pharaoh, and they were married. So Strabo gives us the first recorded report of the unique motif of the slipper test in choosing a bride. 
The first complete Cinderella tale is a story of He Sin, written down more than a thousand years ago in China. Once upon a time, there was a cave master with two wives, one of whom died. The daughter of the dead wife, Ye Sin, was treated very badly by her stepmother. One day, Ye Sin caught a fish and fed it, and the fish became her friend. The stepmother found out about the fish and, disguising herself as Ye Sin, tricked, killed, and ate the fish, burying the bones under a hill. Yetzin wept bitterly until a man descended from the sky and told her to go and find the fish's bones and hide them in her room. Whatever you want, you have only to ask the bones, he told her. At the time of the cave festival, the stepmother went out with her own daughter. With the help of the fish bones, Yetzin, dressed in a cloak of kingfisher feathers and shoes of gold, went to the festival. When her stepmother thought she recognized Yetzin, the girl ran away, losing one shoe. The king ordered that every woman in the land must try on the shoe, but it was too small for all of them until they came to the house of Yetzin, and the shoe fitted her perfectly. She took her cape of kingfisher feathers, the shoes and the fishbones, and went to the court where she became the king's chief wife. The stepmother and sister were hit by flying rocks and died. <laughs> so this more fully developed story develops the motif of the young girls winning the king by means of a magic slipper that would only fit a tiny foot. In China of the ninth century, the time from which the story comes, small feet were marks of extraordinary virtue, distinction, and beauty. Hence the Chinese practice of binding the feet of female infants in other versions of the tale, other items other than dress were sometimes used instead of the slipper. An anklet was used in India, and in Rossini's La Cenerentola, it's not a slipper, but matching bracelets, you'll remember. In the 20th century, the best-known version of the Cinderella tale, other than Charles Perrault, is told by the brothers Grimm. Grimm's tale is a grim one, of course, in which the stepsisters torment Ashen Putl, that's what they called her, on a daily basis, that little pot that sits in the hearth of the fireplace. Though Ashen Putl is forbidden to attend the ball, the little birds make a wonderful dress for her, and she does go. There she meets the prince and captivates him, but runs away early to arrive home before the family gets back. This happens for the first two nights of the ball. In those days, they had three nights for a proper ball, not just one. On the third and final night, the prince has the palace steps smeared with tar so he can catch her, one of her slippers stuck in the tar. The next day, the prince arrived at the house seeking the owner of the slipper. The two sisters in the brother's grim cut off their own heels and toes in their attempts to fit into the tiny slipper, but it didn't work. Ashenputtel at last comes forward in her rags the slipper fits her foot, and the prince has found his bride. In punishment for their cruelty, the little birds peck out the eyes of the evil stepsisters, one on the way to the wedding and one on the way back. <laughs> Don't you love those details of fairy stories? <laughs> so we come to the source that appealed best to French sensibilities, to Jules Massenet and Henri Caen, his librettist. Their source was Charles Perrault, whose fairy tales were widely read by children at the court of Louis XIV in Versailles. This Cinderella, Cendrillon in French, of course, is French, I think, in every respect, in the gentle telling of the tale, in the tender music. The writing itself is a pure reflection of the Belle Epoque from which it came. Perrault published his tales from times past with morals, or in the English translation, The Tales of Mother Goose in 1697. Perrault collected tales, actually, to entertain his own 10-year-old son. The tales always included a moral. His Little Red Riding Hood, for instance, contained a warning about men who preyed on little girls as they walked in the forest. Remember, Little Red Riding Hood actually does get into bed with the wolf disguised as her grandmother, and there meets a fate worse than death. <laughs> this is a warning, and we continue to carry on that warning to our kids today. 
do not talk to strangers or walk alone in unprotected places. This is the point he's getting across. Perrault is credited with laying the foundation for the literary genre of fairy tales derived from folktale. The Brothers Grimm, interestingly enough, did not publish until a hundred years after Perrault. Perrault's tale, then, let's look a little bit more closely at the structure of all of this, contains many of the motifs of fairy tales, which we all are very familiar with, so sort of take for granted. There's magic tokens, like changing the animals into the, into the uh, uh, horses, etc. Disguises, there are masks, there's mistaken identity that covers most of opera's plots. The recognition scene is a common feature of fairy tales, uh, typically, a recognition comes about by means of some token. Cinderella has her glass slippers and is recognized when her lost slipper fits her foot at the end. In some versions, after the shoe fitting, she provides its pair, thus consolidating with conclusive proof that she is indeed the mysterious girl of the ball. The motif of the shoe is key in most versions, but there has been a little confusion over this. In Perrault's original text, he did write ver, V-A-I-R, which actually means fur, but it's come to be misinterpreted as ver, V-E-R-E, which means glass for the slipper, so either a fur or a glass slipper. The consensus is that glass works better because one can see the best foot fit in a glass slipper. If it was a fur slipper, it could be made to stretch to fit an imposter's foot. Cinderella had this tiny dainty foot, which, as I said, could have been picked up from the original Chinese traditional story in binding the feet of young children. Rossini used bracelets instead of slippers since in his time, it was quite inappropriate for a young woman to display her ankles, so they had to use something else. In some versions, rings are substitute for the slippers as the token of recognition, and this action it connects quite well because the ring fits quite nicely with the marriage ceremony. The motif of the magic helper comes in all shapes and sizes too. In Yeetsin, we have uh, the helper comes in the form of a talking fish, in some, it is the spirit mother who is the one that comes to the child's aid, the dead mother. In Rossini, Cinderella's helper is a kindly philosopher, the prince's tutor, who takes pity on the suffering Cinderella. In Perrault and Massenet, we have this beautiful, if wacky, honest-to-God fairy, La Fille, um, the, who is, 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 Perot, is uh, per Pelli's interpretation. In some folk tales, the ancient tradition of the bride show is included, a procession where all the eligible girls of the land are presented to the prince for him to choose a wife. A watered-down version of this tradition still exists today, you may be familiar with it, with uh, debutante balls at which girls of good, wealthy, and or powerful families are introduced into society. One more before we get into Massenet's version. We should talk a little about the Italian um, uh, La Cenerentola of Rossini, which premiered in Rome in 1817 actually 80 years before Massenet. I'm always interested when you have two operas on the same subject, how it comes. I couldn't resist showing you this one because Rossini's opera is really just an excuse for an evening of glorious bel canto. It's about beautiful singing designed to show off the singer's virtuosity. And uh, I'm going to play you a clip now of bel canto in full swing at its best with uh, glorious embellishments and decorations from the one and only Cecilia Bartoli in Cenerentola's final aria at the wedding festivities. Um, this is a finale about a great diva singing at her best. It's very different, and the Massenet is much more involved with the character. Here it's involved with the style of singing. <laughs> Full 
perhaps doesn't have the, the individuality or the intimacy, perhaps the refinement of, uh, of Massenet. It is opera buffa, after all, and the characters are derived from, from the Commedia dell'arte, which is fine. Rossini, it turns out, was also not into fairies, per se. And more crucially and practically, he actually said that the theatres where his opera would be presented did not have the mechanical ability to produce scenes of magic fairies and enchanted forests. So he went for a much more um, down-to-earth, real interpretation, I suppose, if you like. Uh, Rossini's world is one more of the morality and the time of the Enlightenment, not of fairies, but of real people. He replaces the fairy godmother with a real person, actually a man, Alidoro, a wise philosopher, who recognizes Cinderella's worth and guides her throughout the tale. No fairy godmother. There's no wicked stepmother in Rossini, um, he, but he does keep the ridiculous stepsisters for broad comedy. Cinderella in that opera is called Angelina. It's a mezzo-soprano role. And actually, the role casting turns out to be the same for both Cinderella's, not sopranos. They're mezzo-messes. Um, the prince is a tenor in that opera, and he comes with a bass, valet Dandini, with whom he changes clothes. Disguise, again, being one of the major motifs of fairy tales, remember? So I'd like to briefly compare now the two fathers um, musically. First of all, Rossini's Don Magnifico, a basso buffo. Don Magnifico dreams he is a donkey who lands on a throne, and this aria comes with all that fast patter and crescendi, trademarks of Rossini's style, and then immediately followed by um, an aria of Pandolf, Sondrian's father, the henpecked husband, the man who is torn between the love for his... Uh, his daughter and his henpecked wife. So uh, let's hear those two. They come side by side first on Magnifico and then Pandolf. Mi sogna il proposcal chiaro. Mi sogna il chiaro. Un bellissimo somaro. Un somaro ma solenne. Quando un tratto, oh che portento. Sulle spalle a cento a cento, sulle spalle a cento a cento, gli spuntarono le penne, gli spuntarono le penne di aria sciovalò. Ed in cima, ed in cima, campanile, con il trono si fermò, ed in cima, campanile, con il trono si fermò. Yeah. 
his librettos for weeks before ever starting composition so that the words and the music would be intimately connected in a sort of rhapsodic recitative-like writing. Um, th this was not typical. You know, typically, the composer you know, is sweating, waiting for the librettist to get on and write him some words, and then he'll compose it. It's usually a sort of a pretty chaotic interaction. Uh, not in this case. They worked well, these two men. In Cinderella, for instance, this is the best example and one you will come away with and carry with you after you've heard the opera. Music embodies the words, so you get vous êtes mon prince charmant, you are my prince charming. In this lovely, graceful little motif that permeates the opera, it identifies Cendrillon throughout. Massenet also created that sort of diaphanous, shimmering, sparkling quality started with him before Debussy and Richard Strauss picked up that style. That, but diaphanous is a good word for his writing. Much of the work has a subtle and sort of seductive feeling um, in this, it certainly, along with a, a purely Gallic sense of humor that, that's, uh, that's a riot in this particular piece. And here with the stepmother and the two stepsisters. Massenet's characters um, live you, you remember the pain of Werther and Charlotte, the dignity of Don Quixote, the courage of Lucide, the poignancy of Manon, and the sad sweetness. I think that's the best way to describe Cendrillon. Massenet believed himself as a man in an orderly, well-structured type of life. I thought this was interesting. He could compose for 12 hours straight a day. He would rise with the pre-dawn at 4 a.m., <laughs> with only the heroines of his imagination for company. He was always to focused totally on the opera of the moment, composing, as I said, only when he knew the libretto and had completely absorbed it, first the words, then the music. It's not always that way around. The scores were always neat and meticulously tidy, having been worked out well before they reached paper and pen in his head. He rarely used the piano, to work out his ideas. That, that, I think, is surprising. He used notebooks and a special music paper that was thick, luxurious to touch, apparently, richly watermarked. It was made especially for him, the papier maçonné. Dates and times of composition were carefully noted on the manuscript of these, uh, of these notes and, and on, the, on the score. Words and music were first in pencil then neatly inked in. This is a very ordered, structured human being, right? How many of us would do that? <laughs> there were rare mistakes, apparently, in the scores, the first ones. There were detailed instructions for the conductor, and special effects were carefully described, right down to the moment as to how and when the curtain should be raised and lowered. The finished manuscript, and this is highly unusual, then went to the printer for enga engraving, ensuring that there would be no last-minute changes by managements or singers. Again, that was tough to accomplish in that day and age. Generally, he finished work at noon, so he'd go from 4 a.m. to noon. After lunch, he would give lessons or attend rehearsals. In the evenings, he held court at his music publishers. He'd meet with people or journalists. He'd have auditions, keep up with correspondence. He was known for his politeness and consideration of others. 
He stayed well away from his own first nights because he was terrified of a bad reception, and he'd only relax when friends told him of success. The evenings found him at performances of his own operas, and then he would check the takings. Having once been struck with uh, poverty, he was very careful now to watch the receipts, so he really attended to every aspect of the theatre. He married happily Constance when he was young, and they had one daughter, Juliette. She remained with him throughout the years, though <coughs> Massenet did have, as they say, an eye for the ladies. Life can't have been too easy for Constance. Um, but there's something about this man he seems to understand, a woman's point of view, whether the women are real or imagined. He was the most successful composer in France in the 25 years between the death of Bizet in 1875 and the premiere of Debussy's Peleos et Melisande in 1902. He died in 1914 at the age of 72, and Constance outlived him by many, many years. Massenet completed the four acts of Cendrillon, his 14th opera, in the mid-1890s, and the premiere of 1899 at the Opera Comique was a big success. So Cinderella convinces us, if only for an evening, that lasting happiness can be ours. So perhaps that is why the question I asked right at the beginning, why do we remember these? Cinderella is part of our collective unconscious. Having been around for centuries, in many different cultures and forms across the world and over time. In the music of Cendrillon, there are a number of wonderfully different, distinct, different sound worlds. There's the vigor and pomp of the almost baroque court scene, which you've got a little sense of in a parodied version with the uh, introduction of the princesses, with a lot of dance. It's a pastiche of classical forms harking back to the 17th, 18th century. Then there is the lightness and the harmonics of the fairy world that suggest Mendelssohn, Debussy, or even Richard Strauss. The simplicity of the music between father and daughter suggests another kind of innocence. The chromaticism of the love duet suggests the influence of Wagner, even, as time went on. And much of the whole is connected together with Massenet's marvelous French wit in the broad comedy scenes with Madame de Lautière. Now, what about casting these roles? What sort of voices would you use for these characters? How did Rossini and Massenet choose the right voices for what they wanted to present? It turns out the Italian version is predominantly male. Four of the five of the leading roles are men, the Prince, Dandini, Don Magnifico, and Alidoro, the tutor, all male voices. The French Cendrillon is reversed. It is written predominantly for women's voices. There are no less than four mezzo-sopranos. There's Cendrillon, the prince, both mezzos, Madame de l'Altière, one of the stepsisters. And then the fifth lead is the coloratura soprano singing the fairy godmother. The prince is what is called a travesti or pants or trouser role. Uh, a common feature of opera since the 18th century. We've seen a lot of it. Mozart's Cherubino, Sibel in Faust, the composer in uh, Richard Strauss's Ariadne. There are many examples, and perhaps the best of all is Octavian in Der Rosenkavalier. Sandriella, uh, Sandrian's voice, Sandriella, that's a new word. <laughs> Her voice has a very high range. It needs to be a, a mezzo who has that high range and can be sung by a, a soprano too. The pants role of the prince should have a stronger middle range, while Madame de Lautière is a deep mezzo, could even be a contralto singer. So even within the mezzo range, you have high, middle, and low. Only Pandolf, the father, represents male voices in this. He is a bass baritone. Why does a woman sing the romantic lead of the prince? It's all a matter of sound, it turns out. Joyce Di Donato said when asked this question, uh, for me, having two female voices creates a deep sense of intimacy as the voices interact and disappear into one another. Listen for that as you hear these two women sing these duets. It's quite beautiful. I think, she says, this creates a sublime musical world. She compares the blending of voices in Cendrillon with, of course, the sheer beauty of the voices in Der Rosenkavalier, 
especially those duets in the trio at the end of that opera. Tenors are occasionally cast as the prince, but the dynamic changes at once. The make-believe, the innocent dreamlike qualities of the uh, aspects of the piece can just diminish them. In Cendrillon, too, it's interesting, all three leading characters, Cendrillon, the prince, and the father, sing of their unhappiness in their opening arias. They're all miserable at the beginning. The whole movement of the opera, then, is to take them from sadness to joy and fulfillment, which, this being a fairy tale, actually happens. Allez, laissez-moi seul, seul avec mes ennuis. This is uh, in the first act. Uh, it's sung in a mood of sadness and ennui. The prince is, uh, you'll hear on this recording, is the mezzo-soprano Alice Coote. Laurent Pelly talked a little bit about he settled on a concept for this interpretation. As a child in Paris, he said, he absolutely loved the tales his grandmother told him, reading from a wonderful big picture book with great calligraphy, big letters, and lots of drawings and little illustrations. Little did that grandmother know the impact she would be having on her grandson with these nightly readings. I think you may have noticed the sets are, on the whole, white walls, but there's writing on them. These are exact copies from that original storybook. The French words are written on the walls of the set. It works well. In this approach, however, Laurent Pelly, I think, is subtle. His productions are lightly sketched, but they're very poignant and being comedic at the same time as this last example. Um, his design set, as I said, is timeless with the war words of the text written on the walls. The stage is fairly bare, if you notice that, which allows for all kinds of shifts for locations with minimal effort, almost a dreamlike effect, which is what he wanted to get. He designed the costumes as well as the sets, the costumes which at times do seem to be lifted straight out of the fairy tale book. To discuss the score better, I'm going to have you listen to, not me, but the conductor, this wonderful conductor, Bertrand de Belly, a Frenchman, um, and he explains how Massenet draws on many styles. I think the score of Sandrine is very special because Massenet wanted to show the music from Baroque till modern. And it's very special for that. The introduction starts with a big orchestra in Do Majeur, and it's like a parody of Baroque music. In the rehearsal, we try to play this this first phrase on the violin, slower, and I told them, okay, that's Bach or Purcell, if we do that. Of course, it's with timpani and with trombones, but it's a parody. Of, of, uh, of Baroque music and this kind of, you know, this kind of, of ceremony in, uh, we can see the, the, the king, Louis XIV, or with the music from Lully, it's like to say, hello, we come in, in, in a special, uh, in a special imagination, in a special world. You go through all the character of the opera. You have a big operette, uh, all the scene with Mama, with Madame de la Altière, with the two daughters, is, is like Offenbach, like Fedot, 
in the theater. Uh, it's ridiculous. The music is sometimes ridiculous, sometimes very uh, serious in the way of humor. You can go till Rossini, Rossini in French. The set set, it's like Rossini in French. Yeah, the orchestration, when we play that in the orchestra, that, oh, we know that. No, it's Massenet. You don't recognize it's Massenet. It's like big influence in operette. You have big lyrical moments, of course, like you have in Manon and in Werther, the duets, the two duets, Prince Charmant and Cendrillon. Um, this lyric part goes till romanticismus, romanticism. Uh, at the end, this re bemol majeur, the, the, the love tonality in Russian, um, when the story goes often and you have this big climax a la Richard Strauss. And then you go in Wagner and Bruckner uh, with the trombones. It's very funny because sometimes the, trombo the trombones can leave the pit for 30 minutes because they have nothing to do. And then they come back to have a big chorale. And this, uh, when, when Madame de Laltière speaks about the family and the popes and, 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 and the cardinal and the nuns, and then you have this dramatic, you think it's maybe the last symphony von Bruckner or the big parody on Wagner. You have all that in, in uh, Massenet, in Cendrillon. That's a revelation, isn't it? Hearing directly from him. And this is, this is a conductor who can really so well express um, the shifts of mood and changes. Um, I think it might be fun to listen to uh, the, what he referenced here. Yes, this is the next piece coming up. Um, the, the, the big, big uh, brass uh, moment when uh, this ridiculous mother um, is throwing her weight around, literally, and uh, saying that I come from, my genealogy makes me one of the aristocracy and don't mess with me. Um, let's just hear that. And it's uh, Eva Poglas, who is uh, Madame de Laltier in this cut. has opened in the home of Pandolf, his wife, Madame de Laltier, and their two, <coughs> shall we say, challenged daughters, Naomi and Dorothée. Uh, Sandriai is uh, called Lucette, and she is treated like a servant by everyone except her father. The servants of the house, actually, the chorus opens this piece with lively complaints about the demanding Madame. She is a vixen, they decree. Pandorf, in his opening aria, then bemoans the fact he ever left the country to remarry and expresses sorrow for the fate of his daughter, Lucette. The stepmother's ent stepmother enters with the daughters. They have been invited to the palace. A ball is like a field of battle, she announces, ordering servants right, left, and center. There's no time to lose. Her daughters must look their best to captivate the prince. And a comic, a wonderfully comic scene of dress-up ensues. When they all leave the stage, Cinderella sits by the fireside and before falling asleep, sings the lovely aria, one of the great arias of this opera, Reste au foyer, petit grillon, résigne-toi, Sandrine. Uh, stay by the hearth, little cricket, resign yourself, Cinderella.
So while she sleeps, her fairy godmother appears with the spirits and elves and in a flight of coloratura orders them to prepare the carriage and the gown. She wakens Cinderella and prepares her for the ball, exacting her promise she leave at midnight. Finally, she gives her the glass slippers, which renders her unrecognizable to her family. Cinderella leaves in a state of high anticipation. Act two is set in the royal palace, where the sad prince sings of his loneliness and his dreams of love, even as his father insists he has to find a bride. And as we mentioned, this uh, scene of the comedy offset by the serious, beautiful aria. But he has to go to the ball, and he sits downstage with his back to the audience as we, along with him, it's a lovely technique, this, as he's, as he's sort of ignoring it, we are drawn into that uh, extraordinary procession of the eligible daughters of the land who are presented to the prince. The prince shows no interest until Cinderella, an unknown beauty, appears, and the crowd is silenced by her beauty. While Madame de Lottiere noisily criticizes the new arrival, the prince walks forward and takes her hand. It is love at first sight. They sing and dance together. She to tells him, she doesn't give him her name. She says she is a woman of mystery, l'inconnu, the unknown. To the bedazzled Cinderella, he is her prince charming. Vous êtes mon prince charmant, the theme that comes back and back. So the prince has lost his princess. <laughs> in Act Three, she arrives home back in her rags. Recalling her fright as she fled the palace, she realizes she has lost one of her slippers. She hides its pair when she hears her family returning. Madame noisily harangues her husband, and the stepsisters tell Cinderella about the scheming girl who arrived uninvited at the ball and had the nerve to talk to the prince, but then took fright and fled when the prince realized he'd been led astray by a trollop. Cinderella turns pale and Pandolf, her father, holds her in his arms, comforting her. He finally takes a stand against his wife and orders her and the daughters out of the room. In a tender duet, he promises to take Lucette away and back to the country where they were once so happy. She reminisces, reminiscences can't say that, with him and agrees to go. After her father returns, retires, however, Cinderella, believing the prince does not love her and desperate in her grief, plans to leave alone. Adieu, mes souvenirs de joie. Farewell, my souvenirs of joy. She bids farewell to her familiar belongings, her turtle doves, the fireplace, the mementos of her mother. In Act 4 is a complete departure now from Perrault, the only real departure from the original. Massenet gives full reign to his own romantic feelings. In the forest, the spirits and elves dance around a great oak tree in the dark of night as the fairy godmother reads her books, her books of magic spells from the branches. Two young people are seen approaching from different directions. They draw near and kneel before the magic oak. 
separated from each other by an invisible hedge or an invisible line. They can't see each other. The prince, for it is he, pours out his tale of woe to his fairy godmother, calling her most powerful queen, while Cinderella sings to her fairy godmother, the same fairy, of her broken heart. Hearing one another's pleas, each begs for pity for the other until Cinderella realizes the hidden voice belongs to her prince. And the prince learns the name of his lost beloved, Lucette. The fairy godmother unites the couple in a mystical fairy marriage and grants them one brief night in one another's arms. For both, the fairy acts as a concerned mother, testing the strength of their love before bringing them together, and they fall into an enchanted sleep under the oak. Let's hear the forest trio and the mystical marriage. But the final act, of course, opens in Cinderella's home a little later. She has been very ill, but is beginning to recover thanks to Pandolf, who tells her she was found half dead under an oak tree in the forest. No one knew what had happened to her. He tells her how she'd laughed and cried in her delirium, how she talked of the prince, the ball, the glass slippers, and he laughs. It was all but a dream. Devastated, she has to agree. Alas, I did but dream. The girls of the village rejoice in Lucette's return to recovery. And then Madame and her daughters arrive and announce that on the prince's instructions, a gentleman of the court is seeking the owner of a glass slipper. Cinderella overhears this. So my dream was true, she believes, and rejoices calling her fairy godmother and Prince Charming. The final scene is at the court where the heartbroken prince longs for his Lucette. The glass slipper sits on its own in a little cushion before him. Cinderella appears in all her finery, singing Vous êtes mon charmant, as the delighted prince recognizes her when the shoe fits. Madame pushes her way forward and envelops Cinderella in an embrace. My daughter, she cries, as the entire court laughs and everyone sings the requisite tagline to the audience. We've done our best to entice you away to fairyland blessed.
enticed away from time to time. And Massenet does that with this dreamlike score, with brings back our own childhood memories, perhaps. Um, Cinderella dreams of the ball as soon as she leaves it. Her father dreams of his happy life in the country. The prince dreams of what love might be. The forest scene is about love, lost, love, found, lost, found, lost and found. Madame and her daughters dream of a life of luxury at court. The entire opera could be presented as a dream. To wrap, I'd like to finish with Joyce Di Donata, Cendrillon herself. I did this role for the first time in 2006 in Santa Fe, and it was the, the premiere of the production. I'd heard wonderful things about the director, Laurent Pelly, um, and I certainly had been dreaming about singing the role. Um, it's a, an opera that I always loved, and my idol, Frederica von Stade, um, really sort of had a, brought a resurgence to this opera when, when she brought back the role. Um, and I, it was one of those really magical summers. Every element came into it to make it something really special. And I just, as this went along, I knew that I had to do it again. Um, you know, opera takes a lot to, to, to put together for the first time. And it's only, I think, when you come back to it and revisit it that it grows and it, it deepens. And I knew that this was a production that's so full of heart and joy and, and beauty and humor, really wonderful humor that it's, I can't think of a better way to spend six weeks of my life. It's just, it's such a joy to come back to it. That was Desiree Mays on Massenet Cendrillon. The Met premiere of this opera stars Joyce Di Donato in the title role, Alice Coote as her Prince Charmant, and Stephanie Blythe as her imposing stepmother. It's on stage at the Met through May 11th and will also be broadcasted live in HD this Saturday, April 28th, in cinemas around the world. This opera is one of my personal favorites, so it is a broadcast not to be missed. If you want to keep up with all things opera, be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platform. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you for listening.